This is the Bird Hugger Podcast with Katherine Greenleaf, the podcast for people who love birds. Welcome to the Bird Hugger Podcast. I'm Katherine Greenleaf, and I'm so glad to be with you. I'm on board for a full 30 minutes of talking all things birds and restoring native habitat. Did you recognize that bird call? We'll be talking about that particular species of bird in just a moment when we return to Bird Hugger. What happens when a burnt out college professor living in New England decides to become a wildlife rescuer and rehabilitator? Find out on Bird Hugger, the podcast for people who love birds. Join host Katherine Greenleaf, who has been rehabilitating injured wildlife for 20 years and hear how you can turn your backyard into a native oasis for birds. Hello there, and welcome to the first episode of Season 3 of Bird Hugger. We have some exciting new developments we would like to share with you. We are taking citizen science to a whole new level on Bird Hugger. This year, the Bird Hugger podcast will be teaming up with Hawk Mountain Sanctuary, an organization located near Allentown, Pennsylvania. We will be participating in one of their research programs regarding raptors. Hawk Mountain is a global leader in raptor conservation science. For several years, they have been researching the behavior and migration of the broadwing hawk. Once plentiful, the broadwing is now experiencing some setbacks, and Hawk Mountain is conducting this research in order to pinpoint the various problems that may be impeding the hawk's survival in the wild. And now for our involvement. Researchers from Hawk Mountain will affix a tiny, lightweight satellite tracker to a broadwing hawk in New Hampshire. We will be sponsoring this bird's participation in the study, and we will be following him all year. The transmitter will provide detailed information about the hawk's habitat selection, especially geographic preferences when it comes to breeding. The transmitter will also follow the bird's migration in the fall to overwintering grounds, either in Central or South America, where not much is known about the ecology of the broadwing. Information from the research will aid scientists in the formation of conservation actions that could be taken to help this species, including the protection of significant stopover sites. And we will all be a part of this important undertaking. Stay tuned for regular updates on the progress of Hugger, the Broadwing Hawk. And now let's talk about some fascinating new research about spiders. A new study is showing that spiders may be able to sense electrical energy and use it to launch themselves into the air in order to migrate to new locations. Bizarre as it may sound, scientists at the University of Bristol in Great Britain have found evidence that spiders use voltage emitted through the air to make themselves airborne. 
which could explain how spiders have been found floating two and a half miles up in the air and more than a thousand miles out to sea. The scientists say the surprising research, recently published in the Journal of Current Biology, shows spiders attach their silken strands to static electricity and use their legs to steer as they fly through the air. For more than 100 years, scientists believe spiders propelled themselves by wind only, a behavior referred to as ballooning. But Professor Erica Morley, a biologist, tested spiders in electric fields and observed that they used tiny sensory hairs on their feet to hitch themselves to electrical currents and then used those currents to launch themselves into the air. These same sensory hairs also help the spider gauge wind speed and direction. Scientists involved in the study said spiders play a major role in all ecosystems, and that this research raises new questions about how atmospheric conditions influence all spider behaviors, including mating, egg-laying, and web formation. A new study is showing that crows can differentiate between objects with great personal value and objects that can be easily discarded. Recent research from the University of St. Andrews and the Max Planck Institute of Animal Behavior is showing that New Caledonian crows, a medium-sized member of the corvid family that inhabits the New Caledonia Islands in the Pacific, are much more careful in handling a valuable digging tool. Smooth branches and sticks that are forked at the end are faster and more efficient at helping crows to root tasty insects out of tree cavities and bark than just plain old ordinary sticks. The research suggests these intelligent birds assign value to objects they consider important to their survival. New Caledonian crows are well known for employing the use of different tools for extracting insects from hiding places. Once they put down the tool to eat, they are much more careful to protect the complex tool from theft by other crows, and they are more likely to hide the tool in a secure place for future use. Dr. James St. Clair, one of the scientists involved in the research, said it was exciting to see that the crows seem to understand that more valuable tools are difficult to find and replace, suggesting the birds have a concept of relative value when it comes to food hunting tools. If you are enjoying this show and like what we do, please help us out by subscribing or following us on your favorite app to access our free show. That way you'll get notified of what's coming, you'll never miss a show, and it will help us in the ratings. Did you recognize that bird call at the beginning of the show? That's the call of the Eastern Bluebird. People often associate the beautiful Eastern Bluebird with happiness and with good reason. The cheerful sound of a bluebird singing has long been associated with the end of a long, cold winter and the beginning of springtime. Amazingly, the bluebird can sing up to 1,000 joyful and happy songs per hour while in search of a mate, putting everyone within earshot in a good mood. Belonging to the thrush family, the bluebird male sports a vibrant and eye-catching blue head and upper body. Its throat and breast are a reddish-brown shade, and its undersides are white. The female is similar in coloring, except she has streaks of grayish silver shimmering through the blue of her head and upper body. Oddly enough, the bluebird has no blue pigment in its feathers. 
Instead, each barb on the bird's feathers has a thin layer of cells that absorb all wavelengths of color except for one. This means that only one wavelength is reflected and scattered in daylight, resulting in what to humans appears as the color blue. This is also what is known as structural color. The eastern bluebird may be only seven inches long, but has eyesight that rivals that of an eagle. This bird can spot tiny insects in tall grass from over 60 yards away. The bluebird is extremely wary of predators and prefers open grassy areas near stands of trees where they can easily spot potential trouble. This type of area allows the bluebird to swoop down to the ground to grab insects and to also make a quick getaway. This bird has been observed flying up to 45 miles per hour when fleeing danger. Its preference for open areas means the bird is most likely to be found in or near fields, farms, parks, and golf courses. In particular, bluebirds are drawn mostly to areas with an abundance of native flowers and shrubs because of the enormous number of insects these plants attract. The bluebird will devour caterpillars, grasshoppers, spiders, beetles, and crickets. Although it should be stated here that when insects are in short supply, the diminutive bluebird will go after frogs, snakes, and salamanders. The bluebird also enjoys native berries like black chokeberry, blueberry, sumac, hackberry, black cherry, and dogwood. Instead of hovering over its prey, the bluebird prefers sitting on a fence pole and waiting for delicious insects to arrive a behavior not unlike being seated at a restaurant and waiting for dinner to be served. This bird has a very high metabolism, and to stay alive, it must eat 12% of its body weight every day. This would be similar to a 150-pound human eating 18 pounds of food per day. When it's breeding time, males engage in behavior that is called hailing. They flap their wings up and down at their intended mate, hoping to grab the attention of a female similar to hailing a taxi cab in New York City. A male will also carry dried grass and other materials to a prime site in an effort to interest the female in creating a pair bond. When it comes to nesting cavities, think small and snug. Some 75% of bluebirds looking for natural cavities will gravitate to old woodpecker holes and dead oak or pine trees to start a nest. The higher up the tree, the better. For the bluebirds that do choose man-made nesting boxes, studies seem to show they prefer 4-inch square boxes as opposed to 6 inches square. They also prefer larger entrance holes of 1.75 inches in circumference. A mated pair will produce 2 to 7 eggs, which take roughly 2 weeks to hatch. Nestlings are ready to fledge in 21 days. A bluebird pair can raise up to 3 nests of youngsters per season. With bluebirds, it's all in the family. When it's time to build a second nest, the male will babysit the first round of fledglings while the female lays a new set of eggs. There is even evidence to show that juveniles from the first brood will help raise the little ones from the second and third nest of the season. Bluebirds may look pretty and delicate, but can be pretty scrappy and even extremely aggressive when protecting a nest site and will go toe-to-toe with any house sparrow or starling that tries to take over its nesting cavity. Bluebird numbers plummeted between the 1920s and 1950s due to urban development and the removal of the dead trees they depended upon for nesting cavities. Introduced non-native species like the starling also played a detrimental role.
But determined efforts by bird enthusiasts who protected snags and built nesting boxes all over the country has helped numbers rebound. The bluebird's range extends from Canada all the way down to Nicaragua. The bluebird is referred to as a medium-distance migrant. In the fall, bluebirds will migrate to areas in the southeastern United States and Mexico, with bluebirds from Canada flying as many as 2,000 miles to reach their overwintering grounds. The oldest recorded eastern bluebird lived to be nearly 11 years old. And now let's talk a moment about snow drought, a topic that is of great concern to meteorologists right now. Snow drought occurs when there is a winter season of abnormally low snow accumulation, or what is referred to as snowpack. Precipitation that falls as snow, especially at higher elevations, often remains frozen on the ground. Depending on the geographic location, this snowpack can remain for several months or years. And in some regions, multiple layers of snowpack can accumulate over a span of decades. When temperatures warm up, the snowpack starts to melt and releases a slow but steady supply of water into the ecosystem. Think of snowpack as a natural reservoir offering much-needed water, especially throughout the drier summer months. It takes a lot of snow to make some water. Weather experts say it takes up to a foot of snow to squeeze out an inch of water. There are two types of snow drought. One is dry snow drought, which occurs when precipitation goes below expected levels. The other is warm snow drought, which happens when there is plenty of precipitation, but the temperatures are too high for the rain to change into snow. Another cause of a warm snow drought can occur when unusually warm temperatures trigger an early snow melt. The impact of snow drought can be severe. The effects can be widespread, impacting water resources needed for wildlife. Snow is also vital to global food, water, and energy security for humans, providing fresh water to one-sixth of the world's population. Snow drought reduces the flow of rivers and streams and depletes soils of moisture, which can have grave consequences for native trees and plants, as well as watersheds. According to weather scientists, as the atmosphere warms due to climate change, precipitation is shifting from snow to rain, causing more catastrophic flooding events. Wildlife has the double burden of having their forest home impacted by drought and also potentially destroyed by powerful storms. Snow droughts used to be rare events, occurring perhaps once every 500 years. However, meteorologists are now predicting that snow droughts will soon become a regular occurrence. So how do you stop or slow down snow drought? By protecting old-growth forests by preventing rampant deforestation, by avoiding the fragmentation of forests, by reducing consumption and pollution, and by conserving water. In addition, you can also talk to your local legislators about your concerns regarding the continued burning of fossil fuels like coal, oil, and natural gas. Lastly, you can talk to local town planners and ask them to re-examine the efficacy of water infrastructure in your town. You can urge them to make the changes necessary to protect precious water resources. Join Americans everywhere in the one-third for the birds movement. Dedicate the back third of your yard to birds and other wildlife. Make this area a quiet zone with no leaf blowers or lawnmowers. Plant native trees and shrubs so birds have plenty of insects to eat. Create a safe haven for birds to nest and raise their young. 
you will be rewarded with many hours of bird watching fun. For more information on One Third for the Birds, go to the Bird Hugger page on Facebook. And that's it for today's episode, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Have a great week and enjoy the birds. Bye for now. Thank you.